Well, friends, if you've been with us, we are spending uh, most of our summer uh, in the Old Testament book of Esther, uh, preaching a series that I am titled, entitling The Hidden Hand of God. And we are about, I don't know, four or five weeks into it, and, and we are seeing things like how God is, is present, even when he seems absent. If you don't know, if you remember, Esther is famous because it never, ever mentions the name of God in the entire book. But that doesn't mean he's not present and active uh, underneath, um, behind every single scene in the book. We're seeing how God is always at work, even through the very ordinary events of our lives. And interestingly, we're also learning how to live as the people of God in a secular age. Because Esther is reminding us that the people of God have always lived in a secular age. This is not a, a new problem. It's not a 21st century American challenge. Author Eugene Peterson says it like this. He said, always the faith community exists in an environment of unbelief. While we need to be alert to the details of secularization in society, we must never be dismayed by them. Secularization does not threaten the existence of God's people. That's a bold statement, isn't it? I love what the book of Esther is doing to us. It's challenging some of the notions, some of our modern notions, of what we think is absolutely necessary if the people of God are going to flourish in any society. So, for example, for instance, some people say, you know what, we have to have Christians in positions of power. We've got to have Christians in the, in the right positions so that our values are represented, our rights are protected, and God's will is done. But Esther is showing us that God doesn't have any difficulty getting his will done through a pagan king, the king of Persia. He is sovereign over every single detail that leads to Esther, a Jew, becoming the queen of Persia. Now, interestingly, she is in a position of power, but so far she has not used that power on behalf of her people one bit. But the point is this, regardless of who sits on the earthly thrones, God, the true king, is sitting on his heavenly throne. And from there he does whatever he pleases. He's challenging us. Another example, some say that we have to get our moral house in order as Christians. If God is going to work through us, God can, God's will can only be done if we are morally upright. But Esther is showing us that God doesn't have any difficulty getting his will done through morally dubious people. <laughs> like Esther and Mordecai. There are no moral heroes in this story. Everyone, as we've seen, is compromised, and yet God's sovereign grace is abounding over that compromise for his glory, for the good of his people. Another example, I think some say that we have to fight this cultural war, right? That the greatest threat to the will of God being done today is is secular people and their secular ways. But like last week, Esther is reminding us who the real enemy is that our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of darkness. That's where the real battle's happening. That's that's the real battle, the spiritual war. Now, don't don't confuse what I'm saying. Is it okay for Christians to be in positions of power? Of course. That'd be great. Great way to serve. Should we pursue moral holiness? Yes, please. (laughs) Uh, should, Should we understand the dangers of secularization? Absolutely. But Esther is reminding us that none of these are the linchpin that holds together the kingdom of God. No. The one thing necessary is that God is king. 
And his hidden hand is so powerful and is so gracious that he can take any circumstance, any people, any culture, and use it for his kingdom to work out his purposes for the good of his people. He's that wonderful. So where we are in the story, Esther has become queen. But in the last chapter, the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire, a man named Haman, because of a personal vendetta against Mordecai, gets the king to order the genocide of all the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire. This decree goes out throughout the entire empire and says one day, 11 months from now into the future, the people of Persia are to take up arms against their Jewish neighbors, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate them, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. Right, this, is, this is radical, radical evil, and this is where we pick up our story today in what is easily the, the most famous chapter in the book of Esther. This is the chapter where Mordecai tries to get Esther to see that perhaps God has given her the position she has as queen for such a time as this. Anybody ever heard that said to you? Maybe God is working for such a time as this. That's where it comes from. Esther chapter 4. This is the title of this sermon is what I'm calling The Hidden Hand of God in Defining Moments. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? This is Esther chapter 4, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. But in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. We don't have to guess or imagine what you were like because you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus and kept that for us in the Holy Scriptures. And even more now, Lord, you have given us your Holy Spirit who helps us in this moment to understand your words. For all these things, we are grateful. And I, Lord, as, as the preacher for today, I pray that for me that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Should be seated, please. Now, if you think about it, we could say that life, um, life is like a series of defining moments. I know that sounds a little bit like a Hallmark card, and, and I'm not normally cheesy, but it's true, right? Defining moments, what I mean by that are these situations in life, whether big or small, that define who you are, right? The chart, the course of your life. And we have many throughout our lives. Each of us have had defining moments in our lives. I think about why I chose on a whim to go to the small liberal arts college in East Tennessee rather than attending the University of South Carolina as I had planned. But if I hadn't done that, I would have never met this cute little girl from Oak Ridge named April Johnson, right? We all have these moments in our lives, and it's, it's kind of fun to recall. But what I'm specifically interested in today are the defining moments that define who you are in relationship to God. Those kind of defining moments, spiritual defining moments. Karen Jobes says in her commentary on Esther, which I've been recommending throughout, it's wonderful. She writes, defining moments will come around when each must decide whether or not to identify with God's people through obedience to his word. The cumulative effect of many such defining moments in the past determines who we truly are at this moment. Hear what she's saying? She says, if you want to know who you really are today, then you have to look back on those defining moments, big or small where you were presented with the choice to identify with God and his people and his ways or not. And those choices, again, whether big or small, have formed who you are today. And interestingly, this is, this is a common theme throughout the scriptures, where, where God often leads us to a, to a fork in the road, where we must choose who we want to be. Like I think of the defining moment in Joshua 24, where Joshua is at the end of his life and he's speaking to the people who have just entered the promised land and he challenges them, who are you going to serve in this land? Are you going to serve the God of Israel or are you going to serve the God of the nations? Right? Jo- Joshua famously says, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I still see the plaque on my grandparents' house. You guys remember those? 
Or I think of a similar defining moment in the Gospels, where Jesus is talking about treasures on earth and treasures in heaven and which one you're setting your heart on. And Jesus famously says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's a defining moment, right? You have to choose whether the ultimate end of your life, your security, your happiness, is money or God. It can't be both. Chapter 4 is Esther's defining moment. She has to choose who she wants to be. Whether she's going to keep silent and enjoy the comforts of the royal life, or whether she's going to use the position she has to identify with the people of God and to advocate for them at great personal risk to herself, maybe even at the risk of death. Friends, I think God sends defining moments into our lives because they, they reveal. They reveal who we are, and they reveal who God is. So those are going to be our, our two points this morning. Defining moments reveal who we are, and secondly, they reveal who God is. Let's, let's look how Esther's defining moment unfolds so we can reflect upon our own defining moments, what they reveal to us, okay? First of all, what do defining moments reveal about us? And I think this is interesting. The first thing this moment reveals about Esther is her condition of isolation. She's isolated. Notice, she has no idea why her cousin, Mordecai, the father figure in her life, is weeping outside the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> This is Mordecai's response to this murderous decree, probably because he feels responsible, feels like it's his fault. Because he refused to bow to Haman, Haman hatched this treacherous plan to destroy not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. But friends, it's not just Mordecai's response, it's everyone's response. All the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire. Look at verse 3. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. By sackcloth, ashes, fasting, these are biblical signs of lamentation. And interestingly, it is the only distinctively religious act in the entire book of Esther. (laughs) This is it. No one worships, no one prays. Interestingly, even while they're fasting and weeping, it never says that they pray which is really curious. But at the very least, the people know what to do when mass murder has been ordered. We lament. But Esther has no idea. She has to be the only Jew in the entire empire that doesn't know about the decree. How isolated do you have to be? When she hears that Mordecai is out making a fool of himself in the street, she sends him clothes, as if to say, Mordecai, quit being ridiculous. Like, get dressed. Take off that sackcloth. Put on these, ar- these garments. Clean yourself up. Whatever it is, it can't be that bad. Mordecai has to send a message back to her. Did you see all these messages? This, this eunuch was going back and forth with these messages. He has to tell the eunuch to tell Esther about the decree. She has no idea. He even sends a copy of the edict that ordered the destruction of her people. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of a woman who is completely out of touch with her people. Completely. Esther has been queen for five years now. Five years. And in those five years, she has become completely isolated, disconnected, numbed by the decadence of the palace life. 
The point is this, no, no matter who you are, suffering will come into your life. Whether you're a queen or a commoner, suffering will find you. And suffering is a defining moment, especially as a Christian. And when it arrives, you have a choice whether to identify with the sufferers or to remain in isolation. Esther has been numbed by palace life. You know, we can, we can numb ourselves too, can't we? To isolate ourselves from the suffering of the world, to escape our own pain. Our world has no shortage of escapes. We can stuff ourselves with food to avoid the feeling of emptiness. We can fill ourselves with drink to try to forget the pain. We can distract ourselves with entertainment and social media. But notice, all the Jews in the empire have emptied themselves of those distractions, right? They're fasting so they actually feel the emptiness and the need. They're wearing sackcloth so they literally feel the discomfort on their skin. They're sitting in their pain. And the question is, will Esther join them? Or will she remain in the isolated comfort of the palace? Friends, what I want to put before you is that the same is true for us. These defining moments, these suffering, it calls for courage. It calls for vulnerability in us to face the sufferings of the world. These moments can reveal how isolated we actually are, and it invites us to enter into the suffering of others. C.S. Lewis once said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Hear what he's saying? He says, listen, if you, if you reject isolation, if you give your heart to something, it will break. It will break. You, you will weep with those who weep. You will feel the heartache of the world. But brothers and sisters, you will be alive. No longer amusing ourselves to death. We will be an active agent in the drama of God's redemption of the world. Secondly, notice what else is revealed to Esther, which is the cost of inaction. Mordecai tells Esther through the messenger, you you have to do something. You're the only one who can do something. Go to the king, please, and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of your people. But Esther at first is hesitant. She sends a message back saying, listen, Mordecai, you don't just waltz into the presence of King Ahasuerus you got to be summoned, and I have not been summoned in 30 days. So evidently, she's been isolated from the king himself, because <laughs> you know the king's not spending his nights alone. Esther says, Mordecai, it is certain death if I go to the king uninvited, to which Mordecai responds, it is certain death if you don't. Look at verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. 
Mordecai is saying there's a cost to taking action. Yes, there's a cost to identifying with the people of God, but there's also a cost to inaction. There's a cost of keeping silent in a moment like this. Right? Both sides. There's a cost of faithfulness, but there is also a cost to faithlessness. And the cost is you will be cut off from your own people. This is a really interesting statement by Mordecai. On the one hand, it's a statement of deep faith. He's like, one way or another, we're going to be delivered from this crisis. But if you, Esther, if you choose inaction, if you opt for comfort and complacency of the palace, you and your father's house will perish. What does that mean? I think it means, in other words, you will be disinherited from the people of God. Because in our, in our hour of greatest need, you did not identify with us. Because I think the same is true for us oftentimes. We never think about the other side of it, do we? We must consider the cost of identifying with the people of God. We've been talking about this in the series, especially today. Jesus urges us to consider the cost of discipleship. To understand the social, the vocational, the relational risks. But Esther urges us to consider the cost of inaction. What if you don't speak up when given the opportunity? What if you choose to hide your Christian identity? What if you choose the path of least resistance? Mordecai is saying that little by little, this will, this will affect your own soul. It will take a toll on your soul. He's saying if you want to live like you're not one of us, eventually you may actually get what you want. And you won't be one of us. This reminds me of the difficult saying of Jesus in Matthew 10, 32. Where he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Listen, one commentator puts it like this. Esther's choice is therefore one between death and death. (laughs) You're going to die either way. So would you rather die as one of God's people or die apart from them? Would you rather a death defined by courage and willingness to sacrifice on behalf of your people or a death defined by numbness and withdrawal? Only one path, the path of risk, offers deep satisfaction in real life. Listen, friends, some of you may need to come out to your co-workers and neighbors as a Christian. When presented with the right opportunity to say something like, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but I'm a Christian. <laughs> and it's really important to me, and I, I know that might change your opinion of me depending upon what you think of Christians. And I don't even like a lot of what Christians do and say, but I am one of them. They are my family if they believe that Jesus died and rose again. I have found life in Christ. And if you ever wonder what that means for me, I'd be happy to tell you about it. Why? Because there's a cost to your own soul of inaction. So friends, defining moments reveal who we are, but secondly, and more importantly, they reveal who God is. And what this defining moment in Esther reveals about God is that he is sovereign over all the details of our lives. Mordecai is urging Esther to see her story, her position, as one that is pregnant with meaning. 
Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He is urging her to have a theological view of time. A theological view of time that nothing is accidental. I love this. I, I don't know how Esther has interpreted the last five years of her life. I don't know how she's thought about how she ended up in the city of Susa to begin with, a long way away from home in exile, how she ended up in the king's harem, how she ended up married to the king of Persia. Her story is this complex mixture of victim and villain. Some things happening that are beyond her control. Some things are happening because she's complicit with sin. In other words, she's a lot like us. Her motives are mixed. Her heart is not always devoted to God. She has shame in her past. She certainly does not see herself as any kind of hero. And by the way, the people probably don't see her as a hero either. Can you imagine as the news spreads among the people that they should fast because Esther is going to intercede for them before the king? I bet most of them are thinking, wait, wait, our fate is in the hands of Esther? The one who doesn't follow our dietary laws and eats whatever the palace feeds her. The one who doesn't follow our marriage laws and sleeps with, the, uh, sleeps with and marries a pagan king. The one who's been doing what for these five years in the luxury of the palace while we suffer out here, that's our hope. This must have been a shock to Esther too. She's like, wait, Mordecai, you think God actually wants to use me despite everything I've done? You think God has put me in this position no matter how I got here for this exact moment of time. Friends, what would it do for us if we learn to interpret time theologically. To see that all the details of our lives, every single second, even our sin and our weaknesses, there are no accidents. Like, how often do you think about your life this way? Like, why are you here? Why did God bring you to Madison, Wisconsin? Why did, why did God give you the job that you have, the neighbors that you have, the friends that you have? Why are you sitting here right now? <laughs> why have you come to this church? Is it all random? Is it all meaningless? Or does God care about these things, these seemingly trivial things? Friends, what a wonder to learn that every minute of our lives has a grander purpose. In a world that is literally drowning with a sense of meaninglessness. What a gift to see that time matters, that, that place matters, that you matter. No matter who you are or what you've done or not done in the past. That God is present. And he's active and he's good right now. And he invites you into the inner workings of his kingdom. Yes, you. Defining moments reveal the good and sovereign God who is behind all the details of our lives. But interestingly, it also reveals that he is so sovereign and so good that he has a plan, even if you chicken out. <laughs> we don't often get this detail in our For Such a Time as This sermons. Right? The message is usually God has put you in this place at this time to do a job that only you can do. Translation, it's all riding on you. But we often miss the sentence right before the for such a time as this part. Did you catch it? That sentence reads, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. 
Mordecai is so confident in God's promises to his people that he knows deliverance is going to come. The only question is if he's going to use Esther or somebody else. Translation, it's all riding on God. The kingdom does not hang on Esther. It hangs on God. And it doesn't hang on you either. Thanks be to God. I guess you should walk away from Esther 4 with, the, with a renewed sense that God is at work in the nitty-gritty of your life. And perhaps all of it's coming together for a grander purpose. To see it all. Maybe he is raising you up for such a time as this. But you should also walk away from Esther 4 with relief. That it's all not, none of it is riding on you. Otherwise, you're going to become neurotic. God's grace is so big that even if you fail or chicken out, he'll find another way to accomplish his purposes. So even if you chicken out and you don't share your faith with that coworker, God can use someone else. It's not all riding on you. But remember what we said before, you will miss out on this adventure of being an active instrument in the hands of God, of being a conduit of his grace, of participating with him in the work of his kingdom. That's Mordecai's message to Esther. If you keep silent, deliverance is going to come from somewhere else, but don't think you won't be affected. But perhaps, who knows, maybe God does, does want to use you for such a time as this. Friends, the biggest thing that you learn about God in this defining moment The biggest thing you should walk away with from Esther chapter 4 is how it points to the better Esther. And that's Jesus Christ. Indeed, ultimate, ultimate deliverance does come from someone else. Friends, Jesus too had to decide whether to leave the comforts of the heavenly palace to identify with us in our pain. He too, he could have remained detached and isolated from human suffering up in the luxuries of heaven, but the scriptures say that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, time matters. He was sent for such a time as this. He came fully knowing the risk. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Jesus came knowing that he would perish. That's why he came. He too, brothers and sisters, came to intercede for a people who were under a death sentence. The decree of God is that the wages of sin is death, and therefore every one of us was sentenced to death. We too cannot just waltz into the presence of a holy God without perishing because of our sin. But Jesus stands there right now as our mediator, our representative, to plead our case before the great king. He pleads the righteousness of his life for our acceptance. He pleads the payment of his death for our sins. He pleads the victory of his his resurrection for all of our defeats. And now, friends, we enter into the very throne room of God, like children running to a heavenly father, all because Jesus is the better Esther. Friends, what I want to say in closing is that the greatest defining moment in your life is how you will respond to the gospel of Jesus. And it's not even close. It is the ultimate choice of whether to identify yourself with God and his people, not only for this life, but for the life to come, for all eternity. 
It's the ultimate fork in the road of a choose this day whom you will serve moment. It's a defining moment. You've got to serve somebody. So why not serve the one who himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you? Why not serve the only God who doesn't enslave you, but actually sets you free? If you do identify yourself with the people of God, then it will give you an identity in this world that will guide you through all the little defining moments of your life that will make you who you are by the grace of God. It will inform what kind of friend you want to be, what kind of spouse you want to be, what kind of parent, what kind of employee or employer. It will give shape and meaning to the ordinary events of your life. I remember a conversation I had with, with April's brother a number of years ago. Part of, part of his story, part of April's story, is that Kevin survived a car crash that should have killed him. And many years later, he was wrestling with me about the grand purpose of why God had saved him. He says, I keep looking for this opportunity to, like, rescue a kid from drowning or something. Like, something so I can say, I was saved so I could save that kid. Right? He was looking for a defining moment. And I said to him, and I'm, I'm normally not the hero of any story, but I think God gave me the words in this moment. I said, Kevin, maybe God saved you just because he loves you. And maybe he saved you so that you could be a faithful husband and a present father and an employee with integrity. Maybe he saved you so you can love God and neighbor for the rest of your life. And if so, that's more than enough. It's more than enough. So friends, I say to you, maybe God will put you in a big position like Esther. Maybe you will have a defining moment that has big implications for others. But more likely, it will be in the ordinary course of your life. For you will come to see the positions where God has placed you are the arenas for you to live out your Christian calling. To love God, to love neighbor, to bless those around you. And if so, brothers and sisters, that will be enough. That will be a meaningful life. Let me pray and let's ask God to help us. Oh God, our Father, you are sovereign over time. You made time, you made us, and you are sovereign over the details of our lives. Even the places we think where we've royally screwed up. Lord, thank you that your grace and your power is that big. That you overcome them. Thank you for the greater Esther that came to take our sins upon himself, the punishment, the penalty. Lord, so that we could have access to the God of the universe. And thank you, Lord, allow us to learn how to interpret time theologically. To take up the opportunities you have given us for such a time as this. To identify with you, to stand with you, to serve your purposes in the world. Lord, help us. Let me ask in the name of Christ. Amen.